Uh, hello and welcome to the, as promised, addendum episode of uh, Shot Reverse Shots Ask Us Anything series, um, where uh, l- last time we just answered all your questions and this time we decided to focus on one particular question which we felt needed more space for debate. Uh, it was a question asked uh, by one of your friends, Ed. Uh, would you like to tell us uh, who asked it and what it was? Yeah, this is a question from uh, Dr. Michaela Livingston. Oh, Dr. Eh? Uh, Livingston, I presume. I bet she hasn't heard that one before. Uh, I think she may have heard it a few times, but the best thing about it was that she, immediately after graduating, she moved to Bristol and shared a house with someone who had the surname of um, the person who asked that question, Stanley. Uh, wow. So it was, uh, which was an amazing um, coincidence. Never a dull night in that student house. No. Um her question was specifically related to the movie Side by Side, a documentary that you and I have both seen um, fairly recently. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and she was just wondering about uh, why it is that filmmakers seem to be holding so stubbornly to celluloid. Uh, is it a snobby thing? Because the movies uh, that were shown in the documentary, she couldn't really tell much of a difference. Um, and just kind of like saying, and just some general sort of questions of why there seems to be such a tension between the two. Um, and you and I both agreed that that was a subject that was a bit too big to kind of just try and cram into the rest of the, the previous podcast. So mm. we decided to make it a subject all of itself to discuss side by side, but also digital cinema in general. Yeah, I think, I mean, just to say side by side is available uh, pretty readily. I mean, it was released at cinema this month or last month, but it's available on both the US and the UK Netflix. Uh, I recommend you watch it. It's a uh, very engaging, very accessible uh, documentary um, presented by Keanu Reeves, um, who makes a, a kind of very uh, likable interviewer, but I have to say, uh, not the most engaging of narrators. No, he's uh, he has that kind of quite uh, distant kind of vibe that he always puts off of uh, of not entirely being in the moment. Mm. He sounds uh, kind of like a, a kind of actor doing a voiceover for a kind of instructional film who's about to kill himself. Yeah, it is. It, it's not the the best choice, but you know, which is weird, really, because when you do see him in the interviews, he 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 really. Engage, likes like engaging in this subject because obviously a lot of people he's talking to are people he's worked for like the the Wachowskis or, or people that he seems to have a fairly strong personal relationship with and you just kind of it just seems uh, very weird that that passion doesn't seem to transfer too readily to voiceover but the the film itself um, is very good it, it, it asks why uh, and how the the transition uh, from digital from film to digital is going uh, it speaks to some really big players uh, both directors and cinematographers we speak to uh, you know kind of people like Scorsese and James Cameron and David Fincher and David Lynch and there's it's a real kind of variety of people um and they kind of cover it very uh, broadly but then also they they do get into the specifics of um how just not just digital photography is affecting filmmaking it's digital editing digital sound the color grading all that kind of stuff gets into it um what did you think of the film uh, i really liked it i thought that it was very uh, as you said sort of accessible and engaging i watched it with uh, my dad who loves uh, cinema but has no kind of grounding in it in sort of a technical aspect or, or and doesn't have the kind of um obsessive approach to the subject that I do uh, in terms of like reading about it and, and writing about film and he uh, he said that he found it very very interesting very engaging uh, even though it is also sort of delightfully techy in a lot of ways particularly when it comes to discussion of discussion of uh, you know 4k projection and, and filming and uh, you know various sort of things about pixels and uh, storing of the data and everything like that mm-hmm but yeah, so it's. I, I thought it was probably the best documentary that could have been made about the the tension between um, between celluloid and digital. Uh, that isn't that that isn't kind of like either incredibly shallow and sort of takes the sort of the bare minimum of effort, or just so techy that it gets sort of dizzying and impenetrable. 
Yeah, I think um, what I liked about it was um, it didn't seem either reverential to film or it didn't like feel kind of biased towards digital. I mean, it was shot on digital, obviously, because it's a kind of a documentary, and uh, I'll get to that later, how uh, documentary filmmaking has been very much benefited by uh, the digital revolution. Um, but um, I, I, I kind of really liked the way that um, it was kind of set up, but I didn't like the way that it didn't answer the question, does it matter? Yeah, the, it it did seem very inconclusive on that point. And on one level, I can appreciate that uh, the filmmakers are, you know, they are they are basically admitting that it's too big a subject to be have to offer a definitive answer on in sort of a ninety minute documentary. Mm. But at the same time, if you're going to make a documentary and essentially offer some sort of sort of thesis statement on the the whole digital versus celluloid debate you kind of want to have a point of view at the end of it. And it's nice that it offers up kind of both sides. There's lots of pro and anti um, digital um, opinions expressed throughout the documentary from uh, from various different filmmakers, both young and old, uh, which I found quite interesting because you, you would expect it to be all the young guns who haven't really had access to celluloid who would be so super pro-digital, but there's there's a fair few veterans in there who are, who are very... Um, fond of uh, the possibilities of the format but you you kind of would hope that um, at at the end of the day it would actually be able to sort of offer some sort of sort of statement on it Mm. I I thought it was um, very interesting how um, that there was very few people in the in the kind of vehemently anti-digital camp um, mm. the the main people who seemed to present a respectable argument were uh, Christopher Nolan and uh, his DP Wally Pfister and their argument was purely aesthetic um, and it was uh, purely, they recognised it was purely a, pref- a preference to them um, and I think Christopher Nolan's soundbite which really stuck out was that um, he's always asked to justify why he needs to shoot his films on film Whereas no one's asked to justify shooting a film on digital because it's cheap, it's quick, and it's kind of easy, and it makes the kind of the post-production workflow much simpler. Um, but then also there seemed to be quite a few kind of left-field choices of the interviewees. There was a uh, the villain of the piece who uh, uh, we've christened the villain of the piece was a DP of uh, such films as uh, who is this guy again? I can't remember his name. Uh, Jeff Boyle. And he is he's a you may know him from such films as. Uh, Dark Country, directed by uh, Thomas Jane, mm-hmm. um, renowned um, bit part actor <laughs> in relatively small films. Uh, Mutant Chronicles, so he's worked a few times with Ron Perlman, and uh, Street Fighter: The Legend of Chun Li. Wow! So uh, a cinema heavyweight. He, yeah, he's no Michael Chapman, is he? Uh, this guy. Um, so yeah, anyway, he's. Uh, this guy's a dick, isn't he? In the film, and like he, his argument just seems to be kind of like eh, he's not good enough, and just without any kind of real thought to it. And when he's saying it's not good enough, and then it cuts to David Lynch, who uh, who, who knows a thing or two about filmmaking, mm-hmm. and he's just like, oh, you know, it's a really kind of interesting, you know, way of doing things. It seems a little silly to include that other guy. Do you think that they were yeah. struggling to find kind of voices against digital that were that animated? I guess so, because I think it, it just seems really weird that, that they would include him. And maybe he is uh, he is held up in sort of very high regard in the cinematographer community for reasons that you and I find completely uh, unknown or perplexing. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it does seem it seems very odd that he may it, it may it may be just that the case that they shot a load of these interviews and then at the end of the day they realised that there wasn't anyone who was that that vehement I mean mm. the closest you get to him as you say is, is Christopher Nolan and um, Wally Pfister but they're either sort of more measured in their criticism or they kind of have a slightly more poetic way of putting it I think Wally Pfister says as part of his argument that um, you know he's a painter he doesn't want um, to be forced to suddenly start using crayons mm. which is slightly wanky but you know, it's making a very. I think it's making a very good uh, point about the fact that the the switch to digital seems to have occurred at a very rapid pace 
before necessarily all of the kinks have been worked out with the process. Mm. And um, he's very much open about saying uh, we're shooting on film because that's what we like and that's what looks best for what we want to do. But because mm. because digital can't do that yet. Yeah, he's uh, he's kind of not that far removed in some sense from what George Lucas says because George Lucas is very pro digital. He's, he's been at the forefront of it. And he says essentially that you know the technology may not be good enough now, but it will be one day in the future because that's what happens with technology: is people will invest loads of money and time and effort into perfecting it and to working out the problems. Hmm. Um, what it kind of reminded me of, in some ways, sort of Wally Fister's point of view, was um, there was a, a quote um, from Alfred Hitchcock when he was talking about the move from um, sound from silent films to sound. And he said, uh, words to the effect that the advent of sound happened about 20 years too early, mm. because at the point that it happened, people were only start just starting to kind of realise the potential of silent film, and then they were just thrown back to square one again, because suddenly you have to relearn how to do all of these things, but also include sound, and you end up with that sort of slightly awkward period where the movies become a lot more static than they were, and everyone has to figure out how you hide mics in you know, bouquets of flowers and things like that. Um, and it's kind of, uh, it, it seems to be a similar sort of uh, argument in some ways, certainly from Wally, Wally Fister's point of view, which is that it's not that digital is an inherent evil, but it's a technology that is not quite progressed to the point where it, it, it can replace film. Yeah, it, it's, I think what's important to state is that when films were started to be made on digital they were very basic digital it was better than video as in better than video tape but it was still mm. you know a mini dv or an hdv tape um and the quality was broadcast quality i mean you know if you watch a, a, a tv show like changing rooms or bargain hunt on you know some cheap daytime tv show they'll all be shot well they used to certainly used to be shot on hdv um and you know when it's film started to be shot like that, and they, the the example they used um, in uh, side by side was the film Chuck and Buck, which was f uh, filmed very much with uh, mini DV cameras. Now, what they said when they talk about Chuck and Buck is that you, they were unprepared for what the audience would think because in your head you see the artifacts of digital film and you instantly think home video, and yeah. you're sat in a cinema watching it so it will kind of jar um, and I think the argument that is perhaps not touched upon very well in Side by Side is digital filmmaking is one thing what I think a lot of people's objections to digital filmmaking are is when digital tries to look like film mm. so you've got a film like uh, The Celebration or Fessen uh, in its uh, original Danish um, which makes no attempt to look like celluloid yeah. It, it 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 looks like home video footage because that's what works. It's a it's a film about a uh, a family reunion that goes not to plan, um, and it suits that medium. Same as the Blair Witch Project might use it digital camera because it's found footage, I guess. Um, and for that, it works because it's not trying to ape the look of film. Now I think that a lot of the the problems that uh, yeah the kind of the critics of digital were like kind of um, talking about in side by side were when digital cameras got so good that you didn't get those digital artifacts as much anymore and the style it, well the look it reached for was the look of celluloid and then kind of that's the point at which the two converged around the kind of early 2000s with something like Attack of the Clones. Um, which was that was the kind of watershed moment wasn't it really yeah because um, George Lucas um, saw the potential of uh, digital around about he, he around about the, the time they were making The Phantom Menace but that it, he saw that it wasn't quite there mm. so he kind of committed himself to filming the entirety of the second one on high on, definition digital yeah. that's that's the sorry that was the bit the, before it was digital and then after attack of the clones it was high definition digital yeah and you can you can really see the difference because essentially um stylistically there's there's a there's a big 
uh, there's a quite a jarring change really between um, Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones because uh, Phantom Menace is filmed. There's lots of green screen. There's lots of you know computer generated characters and events, but there's also lots of physical things. There's lots of uh, people on on sort of actual sets with props, and then uh, and it, and it still looks more or less like a Star Wars film in, mm. in the sense of the old ones, and it's still clearly been constructed using the techniques of, of of cinema up until that point and then when you get to Attack of the Clones everything starts to look really kind of rubbery yeah. and very um, it's a lazy way to describe it but it does look very computer gamey really and mm-hmm. you you can really start to see the, the joins between the, the human characters and the, the CGI stuff because so much of it is CGI that the humans kind of stand out like a sort of thumb yeah the, the, the humans start to look like the special effects um, I think when you know if you watch an old kind of uh, film with a kind of uh, Harryhausen style monster in it when that monster turns up it's so jarring I mean obviously they're so well designed and so well animated that you kind of lose yourself in it but they're so jarring you can tell they're a special effect and I always think it's funny when like Avatar goes back to having a human in it you're like oh, oh hang on <laughs> is that real? Oh no that is real that's a human but I've been watching an animated film it's a bit like the reverse of who framed Roger Rabbit? <laughs> it's like it's like you suddenly got, uh, you know, a digital world, and then a human comes into it, and you're like, hang on, what? Eh? It doesn't gel. Uh, it doesn't work. But um, yeah, it's it's when um, I've just been researching uh, this bit. There's a really great book written by uh, Mike Figgis, director of uh, Leaving Las Vegas and various other films. He he kind of converted to making digital or experimenting with digital cinema quite early, and he did a. Uh, experimental film, two experimental films. I think one's called uh, Time Code, which features a lot of kind of split screen and all handheld uh, mini DV cameras. And I think the other one was called Hotel. I might be wrong on that one. Um, but he was a, a very early proponent of using digital cameras and not trying to hide their limitations, getting to know your camera and, and um, treating it as its own thing, not. I'm making a, a you know a huge movie. Use it like you're making a very intimate piece, and you've got a small camera you can hold in one hand that you can get close to the actor. You can reshoot as much as you want and use it for that, rather than you know trying to make Lawrence of Arabia with your dad's camcorder. Yeah, and you can really see that going back to um, the celebration. You can really see that in some of the the shot choices that um, that Thomas Vinterberg and Anthony Dodd Mantle, the uh, the cinematographer. Um, tried to do uh, with regards to, for example, there's a there's a shot that is shown in in side by side where the camera acts almost like like almost like a fly in the room, like it kind of drifts down through the air next to a woman's face in a way that you just couldn't do with a sort of a large actual film camera, mm. um, and because it's clearly being held by someone who's doing this, or it's part where someone gets sort of thrown out of the the house and the camera's really really low and it looks like it's just like strapped to someone's waist and they've been, as they're being thrown out and there it's a case of people really embracing the fact that this isn't film they're not trying to make it look the same as, as celluloid they are kind of saying you know we can't make it look as sort of visually kind of rich and detailed because obviously they're working they were using sort of shitty cheap um, digital cameras that you just can't get as much information on as, as you can on celluloid but um, they were also going, okay, so that's the limitation. What does it three is to do? Mm. And do you think that um, that the people like, uh, I mean, it's hard for me to ask you on their behalf, um, but do you think that the critics of uh, digital film accept that? And do you think that their problem is not with digital, it's when digital is used to ape celluloid? I do think that's probably plays a bit into it because it kind of feels like, um, you know, what it essentially is, which is a cheap imitation of something that these people are used to and have grown to love. Mm -hmm. And essentially being forced to watch people kind of um, try and produce that, but not having anywhere near the same sort of technical ability to do so. Yeah. Um, And I think it's it's less to do with the idea that uh, digital is inherently bad. Mm. than it is with just kind of like saying um, what uh, w- uh, then saying you know why 
if you can't afford to use film, would you try and replicate the effect when you you, you literally can't? Yeah, I mean, what struck me is is something they didn't touch on in in the the documentary um, is shitty looking movies and and nothing new. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? No. And would someone like I don't know um, John Cassavetes would he, you know would his films be markably different if they were shot on digital? Would he, would he have been someone who massively benefited from shooting films on digital? I mean, he used a lot of improvisation. He uh, shot on very small handheld cameras in real locations using a lot of natural light. Is someone like John Cassavetes someone who would, um, if he was around today, would he have just been a proponent of digital rather than film? Would that have freed him up to do more? Uh, I think that's possible, but I think it, it would depend on perhaps... Uh, whether his main thought would have been for cost over aesthetic because obviously the thing with John Cassavetes was he all the films he directed near enough I think there may have been one or two that had sort of studio um, a bit more money behind it but he more or less just made his films completely outside of Hollywood system he took jobs in things like The Dirty Dozen and and, mm. and uh, Rosemary's Baby so that he could he could fund the films himself which is often why a lot of them would be like shot mm-hmm. like shadow shadows were shot over like several years i think and mm-hmm. um faces was shot pretty much in his house for a large yeah. part of it uh, and you can really kind of but uh, a lot of it's they still look really good because they're still sh- they're shot on an inferior version of celluloid but it's still celluloid mm-hmm. and i think that there's a big uh there's a big um aesthetic choice and an artistic choice made there um, but maybe he would have embraced digital because he wouldn't have had to raise like almost a million dollars a time to make this small budget film that he wants to you know make completely free of restraint. Because if you have got a digital camera, the the cost like shoots down immeasurably. Mm. I mean, and yeah, like you say, he he didn't have a choice. It was it was forced on him, budgetary. Mm. And you, I do imagine that uh, that that he probably would have kind of used it if possible and kind of would have embraced it. I mean, I also thought about something like Clerks, which mm-hmm. looks fucking awful. Yeah. Um, uh, no matter what format you, you you watch it on or what version you've seen restored and kind of how, it looks like a shit, like a piece of shit. Um, and, you know, would that have been better on digital? Would it have been different on digital? I don't think it would have been massively different in terms of the look. I think the main difference you kind of see with um, film over digital in sort of when you get to sort of the lower end of the budgetary sort of scale is all of the other stuff about the way the film is made. Because uh, John uh, Malkovich talks about this a little bit in Side by Side, how coming from coming from theatre, he uh, he doesn't like the he doesn't like the whole idea of having to. You know, you shoot a bit of a scene, and then they say, "Okay, uh, we need to set up. It's going to be 40 more minutes before we can do it." And then have to go in and then be at the same point of intensity for the next part of the scene. Well, after they've got all the lighting set up, um, which you have to do with celluloid because you have to make sure everything's exactly right. Otherwise, you're wasting a shitload of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you see, uh, you know, if you're using digital, there's none of that because essentially. It doesn't cost anything. Well, it costs because you have to buy the, 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 the storage devices, but it doesn't cost anywhere near as much to shoot digitally as it does on celluloid. So you can just keep going and going and going, which is probably why it's, um, like, as you say, it would suit someone like Cassavetes who enjoys um, enjoys using, uh, who enjoyed using improvisation, because it obviously works like that, because you can have lots of cameras running at the same time and just capturing everything. Mm. Um and I think that that's probably where the bigger change comes in, because it's not just the fact that it will look, it might look a little like a little crisper maybe than shooting on sort of like low quality celluloid. It's like everything around the production suddenly changes. You can shoot quicker. You can shoot. Um, and you know, Danny Boyle talks about that when he's uh, talking about shooting Twenty Eight Days Later. Mm. where you know they were basically able to just go out with some cameras in London and get all those great shots of you know London after everyone's died mm-hmm. which are essentially just um, uh, which is essentially just they just went out early enough in the day shot for like 10 minutes and then just like buggered off yeah uh, and so you can really see 
you know, there, there's kind of such a colossal difference, really, in terms of what you can do when you're freed from having to necessarily light everything perfectly or, um, you know, having to just get... Uh, have be, sort of being limited to only shooting when everything is ready. Mm-hmm. Like, all of the lighting and everything. If you can just start rolling and keep going. Yeah. Uh, I always... Uh, something else I was thinking about is about how changing mediums between film and digital can affect someone's style. And the one that struck out to me was the... Um, Shane Meadows started with uh, 24-7, a film shot on film that was scripted uh, and kind of scripted quite heavily and as his career progressed he moved to shooting on digital and doing far more improvisational work um, because that was what was allowed to him. I, I mean, I still think I, I'm. I may well be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure that 24/7 was still his most expensive film, um, just because of the fact that it was a you know a huge cast. It was shot on film. Uh, although someone asked him why he shot it in black and white, and his answer was because uh, I, I support Notts County, who play in black and white. Um, <laughs> but I don't believe that. I think that was a flippant answer. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you look at something like Dead Man's Shoes, which famously. Um, started off as a comedy about a social worker who dresses as a superhero uh, to kind of beat up the uh, the kind of rapscallions in his neighbourhood that turned into an incredibly dark revenge drama that was born all out of improvisations and using um, digital film that made that possible um, can you think of anyone else or, or that has kind of made that transition um, or do you think that do you think that's just a coincidence that that um, that's happened to Shane Meadows and he's just become a more accomplished filmmaker who's found his style as he's moved on uh, no I think you can see that in um, for example I uh, mentioned him earlier uh, in terms of uh, David Lynch because mm. um, the last feature he made he shot digitally was uh, Inland Empire and um, visually that looks like mile it, it, it's it's incredible how different that looks to Mulholland Drive which was shot on celluloid mm-hmm. but also the whole vibe to it is so different he he's able to kind of accentuate the weirdness mm. of of everything because he can get really close to people's faces but also he can sort of do these like really nightmarish things with the with the imagery um, there's the, the moment which haunts me to this day of Laura Dern just kind of like running at the camera and you think as she's just running that maybe she's uh, maybe she's laughing or something but as she gets closer it it just kind of it, she, it becomes apparent that she's like screaming that something's been done to her face to like alter it so it's slightly inhuman mm-hmm. and it's utterly terrifying and I'm sure he could have done something similar in celluloid but you can kind you get the sense that he is he has found something in digital that mm. you know kind of just fired up his imagination on that one and you could really accentuate just how uh, how, how sort of like the, the sort of surreal quality of his work to sort of even new heights mm. and you can also see that in some of like the digital stuff he's done lots of digital shorts and things which you know have gone out on his website and uh, and you can really kind of get that sense as well that he really has engaged with the format and, and views it as a separate thing to celluloid in his films they're still undeniably David Lynch mm. because you know he has this sort of style that is unmistakably his and a sort of a, a, a sort of a weird tone as well, but his uh, his uh, he, they also are clearly new, and he's he's discovering something new with the art form as well. Yeah. Um, do you think it ultimately matters, Ed? Do you think that um, that any resistance to it is just the initial resistance to the technology, like you discussed with sound, uh, and the rest is just kind of snobbery and nostalgia? Um, and do you think the audiences care? I mean, if you if you look at the kind of you know the most successful film of all time was shot on digital, um, Avatar. It, does it matter? Do audiences give a shit? I don't think that audiences give a shit. But I do think that it matters for reasons beyond mere aesthetic choices. I do think that it's going to be we're going to be a few, probably a decade away from digital film that can hold the same sort of data and can mimic the effects of celluloid efficiently that it can be. A true replacement, which is essentially what it's being groomed to be now. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in this stage at the moment where 
they sort of coexist, but really digital's kind of the dominant force. And you only really get celluloid if you can really uh, if you can really force the hand of the studio in the way that Christopher Nolan did. Yeah. You know, oh, and continues to do on all of his stuff. I think it, it matters more in terms of um, film preservation, as they talk about in the documentary. There's the uh, the the preservation technique for digital is not uh, entirely perfect. Uh, it's prone to sort of data getting wiped, and there's nothing to say that um, that the, the the formats that we currently used are even remote. We currently use are sort of remotely future-proofed in that regard. You know, it may mm. get to a point where in a hundred years' time, like ninety percent of the films that currently exist just won't exist anymore. Yeah. Because the, there won't be any physical prints which you know survive and can be, you know, you can keep uh, creating a new print off an older print and treating it in the same way that we have been doing. And, um, and 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 perhaps maybe that's the future for celluloid is that everything's filmed on digital, but then everyone strikes a print for the archives mm. um, to ensure it survives. And you know. Personally, I'm I'm not averse to the idea of uh, of uh, you know future generations not being able to watch the Transformers films. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but you know there's been a lot of great stuff done on on digital, and it would be you know horrifying to imagine that in a hundred years' time, uh, the films that are being made now are seen in the same way that all of the old Lost Silent films are viewed. Because mm. you know obviously there, there's that story that ninety percent of the that statistic, but ninety percent or something of the uh, films created before 1920 don't exist anymore and you know I'm sure there was a lot of shit in there mm. and stuff that wouldn't have been particularly edifying to watch now but I'm sure there were some masterpieces that just no one in no one alive has ever seen and never will yeah. so I think that that is probably for me personally that's the the thing that matters more than aesthetic choices because you know technology will always find a way and will always get to the point where you can uh, replicate the effect of film, even if it, you know, may not have the sort of ineffable qualities like, you know, sort of that sense of warmth that you get from watching celluloid, or you know, maybe not be able to quite capture light in the right way. Mm. But you know, the idea that you know that these films just won't exist one one day and will only exist like on the IMDb and in textbooks or you know Kindles, mm. um, <laughs> yeah, most likely, um, you know, is is a ter- kind of a terrifying thought. Mm. It is. Um, we're going to do a top ten now, uh, which makes it a great time to hear the jingle. Top ten. So yes, uh, we are talking about the uh, top ten best films that have been made on digital, shot on digital, and we mean mainly on digital. But um, yeah, w- w- what's your first choice for uh, greatest film shot on digital? Uh, I think my first choice is uh, one we talked about already, which is uh, Ce- the celebration, mm. uh, Thomas Vin- Vinterberg film, um, which uh, a is uh, is a is a, a film that, as we've talked about, makes really great use of digital in terms of the freedom of having a, a small camera and being able to do things that you can't do with a, a film and having this. There's a certain freedom to it uh, that that you don't really find in, in a lot of celluloid films because obviously. It was made at the kind of the the very beginning of this period of uh, experimentation with digital film. So this sense of people just kind of fucking around and seeing what works. Mm. Um, which, uh, uh, but also, it's just a really it's a really compelling film in just a, a, this like great story. This kind of like uh, you know group of people in a single location kind of and the tensions that are thrown up by it. So it's a story that works for sort of a cheap a cheap mode of filmmaking as well because mm. you're essentially going well we have a location we have a cast we don't really need to do loads of extraneous stuff yeah uh, and it's the only it's one of only two dogma films I can actually stand as well so it gets a, gets a point there yeah it's it's really the, the poster boy for that movement that really wasn't really much to write to Moscow about was it that uh, no. dogma, dogma movement it was um uh, well, mostly shit. Uh, okay, yeah, my f- my first choice. I'm going to try and keep mine in kind of chronological order. Um, I'm going to talk about f- uh, a film that was made on uh, mini DV, so the kind of the very uh, the pubescent stage of the, of the digital um, uh, kind of 
of, of uh, evolution um, is a uh, genre film, a horror film called Session Nine, directed by Brad Anderson, um, which is uh, we, I think we mentioned it before, or did we mention it on that horror episode that we never broadcast? Um, I yeah, think I think that might have been. Yeah. But yeah, Session Nine is a, is a really kind of uh, solid little hidden gem um, that was straight to video in 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 the UK. Um, but yeah, kind of uh, a really kind of intimate, understated um, horror film about four guys, asbestos removal men, who are removing asbestos, funnily enough, from a abandoned insane asylum. And one by one, they kind of slowly uh, lose their shit. And the digital photography in that is great, because it, it, it doesn't try and hide the fact that it's digital. And, um, like you said with the celebration the immediacy of it and, and the kind of closeness of it uh, makes the the kind of the feeling more eerie um, and it feels more personal uh, to them because it's such a small cast um, and even though it is a, they shoot it on a location it's a real abandoned uh, insane asylum that would have looked great on uh, celluloid and you know kind of in uh, 35mm and kind of sweeping shots it really suits it to get in there get down and dirty and and um use it as a way to kind of increase this paranoia by being so close to the actors you can kind of smell the fear i mean it's a, i know you're a fan of the film ed mm. yeah i i am i i really like it in for those reasons as well there's an immediacy there's an intimacy to it you know and there's a there's a sense of paranoia and claustrophobia just from being in that location because it's amazing uh, amazing place that mm. they found this old insane asylum, um, which I believe is uh, m- uh, provided the inspiration for um, so the insane asylums in H.P. Lovecraft's uh, fiction. So it's got oh, pedigree, right? It's got pedigree. Um, but also, it, there's a lot of interesting things in that horror film that I really like. It's a horror film that takes place almost entirely in the day. Yes. Because obviously. Um, they're asbestos removal men. They will work in the day because they don't want to spend their evenings in, a, in an abandoned insane asylum with stuff that's going to kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, but or there's uh, the, the the digital because digital can't really handle the color balance between yeah. light and dark so well. It makes the light really really harsh, mm. and that uh, could be a detriment. But in that film, it, it really works because it has that same sort of feel of. Something like you know, Insomnia, the, uh, mm. the the both the Nolan remake and the, and the original, where the light is kind of oppressive. Yeah. And it really it really feels like it's weighing down on the guys as they're going about their day. Um, except in the case of the 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 moment, the the absolutely horrifying moment in it when that guy's being chased by the lights that are, are are going out as he's in that dark tunnel. Yeah, the guy who's who's terrified of the darkness is is basically trying to outrun a series of lights that are going off one by one in a long eerie corridor. Yeah, that bit's that bit's amazing. Use of darkness in a film that's otherwise just about the sort of uh, inescapable light, which is uh, not something you see in horror films very often. The only other horror film I can think of that does that is The Happening, which is a film that uh, is is a better script and director away from being a really interesting film. Um, <laughs> but. Um, so, so only a few minor problems. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, so that, that I think that a lot of the things that are great about it is the stuff that digital essentially allows it to be. Yeah. Because it, it accentuates the things that may. I've said that a lot today. Accentuates. Mm. It's a good word. word yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, uh, it's uh, you know it it pushes these things that could be seen as detriments to the to the format and actually makes them uh, positives. Mm. Uh, what's your next choice? My next choice is a Japanese film from 2001 called All About Lily Chow Chow. It's basically um, a, a drama about sort of two young boys in uh, Japan, uh, one of whom is uh, bullied uh, but suffers a near-death experience and becomes the bully. And uh, it's this very uh, sort of harsh... Again, there's a, it's, there's a film... Uh, it's a film that takes place in the day an awful lot, and there's a lot of very harsh lighting in it. And in some ways, it's about the um, the the cruelty of being young, and of the sort of reciprocal uh, nature of bullying, and how bullying creates more bullies, and uh, and sort of the 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 everyday horror of being young and being at school, 
um, and about sort of the friendship between these two boys. It's, to- it's a story that's told out sequence, which again is kind of a thing that a digital makes easier because if you're mm. using a non-linear digital editing tool, you can you know fuck about with the chronology and, and do loads of all kinds of interesting things. But it's just this it's this really fascinating sort of uh, really bright and sunny and you know the the lily chow chow is the um is like a, a, a j-pop star that uh one of the boys is obsessed with mm. uh, and like runs the message board and uh, a large part of the story is uh, excerpts from the message board appearing on screen and these two people kind of having this conversation and you don't know who it is until sort of the very end of the film um and the film itself actually started out as a, a novel being written as a fake website and a fake message board uh, that the director set up um and it's uh, it's just this really uh evocative and disturbing and strange little film uh which i think like session nine makes really and and the celebration makes really great use of sort of digital photography more than just being cheap it just kind of it's something that feels like something that the, the kids themselves would make mm. but obviously with more art- artistry than that right sweet i'll look out for that one um, it's very very good oh sweet uh, my next choice is and I'm going to cheat here um, because I'm going to pick a film that didn't even use any cameras um, but we can call it a digital film it's a Pixar film it's uh, Wall-E you um, son of a bitch I know um, sorry um, but that film was um, obviously because animated films have to have a director of photography but it's just there's no actual photography involved it's kind of a mm. peculiar one um, but I believe that kind of watching the kind of making of Wally, um, they talk very much about asking specific directors of photography who worked with film to come in and talk about how um, it, it would have looked if they'd have shot this film on film in the 1970s. Mm. Um, and it is, like all Pixar films, a beautiful film, um, a beautiful looking film. But I think it was the first one of theirs, maybe Finding Nemo a little bit, that really l- just looked. Um, like the cinematography had uh, gone up to match the kind of uh, inventiveness of the animation. If you looked at Toy Story, the the kind of the cinematography really isn't one of the the, the kind of strong points of those films, are they? No, even the third one, which obviously is made after um, Wall-E, the cinematography is very limited because they have to try and make it match the first mm. two. And the first two, they're very limited by the. Uh, by the, the restraints of the technology. Obviously, they were sort of pushing the envelope and they were working at the absolute sort of limits of what the technology could do. Mm. But that meant that you couldn't really do convincing lighting. You couldn't really do kind of anything other than it's either dark or it's either daytime or nighttime with no kind of in-between or, or very few, very few little sort of gradient in-between. Whereas in Wally, you get this, like really broad spectrum from sort of the the dusty red um you know wasteland of earth to the sort of bright and shininess of the uh of of the spaceship and then you know there's this uh you know you see everything sort of in between as well Mm. but yeah it's it's I, i i still think it's pixar's best looking film oh yeah i definitely agree with that it's the one that's the most uh the most uh, visually kind of like stunning, particularly the first half an hour. Mm, yes, uh, all definitely. The stuff, all the stuff that's just on Earth uh, uh, looks so sort of sad and melancholy. Um, and, you know, it's what's wonderful about it is it then makes, you know, Eve sort of really sort of stand out when she arrives. She's this bright, chic, white kind of Apple product that kind of wanders into, into a Microsoft world. Mm. Um yeah uh what's your next film choice uh my next choice is one that uh i mentioned earlier uh inland empire by david lynch yes which um is uh, a film about a woman in trouble i believe is the the one line description that was used um by david lynch to describe it Mm. um which is about as uh about as as far a description of the narrative as it could be um Laura Dern plays an actress who's hired to work on a film and then she starts to become the actress who is in the film but she's also uh, a rabbit in a sitcom 
mm-hmm. and um, it's just this it's it's a, it's a fucking nightmare. It it's sounds pretty a, pretty formulaic to me. Yeah, it is pretty it's it's pretty de rigueur, but um, <laughs> it's it's a, it's a it's a fantastically uh, intense experience. Mm. Um, I, I remember going to see it. It was the first, maybe the first press screening I ever went to going at sort of nine in the morning to sit through this three hour digital uh, hell um, of watching sort of like David Lynch's imagination sort of completely unfettered mm-hmm. and uh, it still is probably one of my favourite films as a result because it's just it's just so sort of beyond the pale of what you would expect from even David Lynch who obviously up until that point had, had sort of experimented with like his first film is a surrealist masterpiece is is um eraserhead but obviously he'd experimented with sort of non-linear storytelling uh quite a bit up until that point but this kind of like really pushed it to the very very edge of what you could do mm. with a story and have it still sort of make sense but not in sort of a literal way more in sort of a, a weird sort of emotional and thematic sense mm. um my next choice is uh, a film called Rachel Getting Married, um, a Jonathan Demme film made in 2008. Uh, it's very good. Um, uh, have you seen it, Ed? I have. I remember not liking it very much, but oh, right. I think that was mainly because I have just an aversion to weddings. Oh, okay. Uh, Fair enough. Uh, uh, but I, I appreciated that you know it was it, it was a wonderfully staged film and that Anne Hathaway's performance was amazing in it. Mm. Uh, I think I don't I think was it that the year she was against Kate Winslet for the reader yeah it was yeah she was yeah. nominated for an Oscar um, I really think she should have won for Rachel Getting Married even though the film didn't it, I just kind of found myself being a bit annoyed by the whole film particularly the fact that the wedding kind of goes on for a really really long time well the clues um, in the title yes I know but still even it, it was a very very um, precious wedding even though I did like seeing the guy from TV on the radio uh, in his acting debut <laughs> Yep, and the, s- singing a Neil Young song. That was pretty amazing, actually. Yeah, and but, Robbie uh, Hitchcock's in it as well, which is cool. Yeah, the reason I picked it um, is uh, the cinematographer on that is a, is a chap called Declan Quinn, and he shot another wedding-themed uh, film. He's probably a wedding videographer, isn't he? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, he shot uh, the uh, Indian film uh, Monsoon Wedding. Have you ever seen that? Oh, I have. Yes, that's a very good film. Yeah, and if you think about it, they're practically the same film. <laughs> um, they just are. Without, yeah. without the dead kid. Um, but Monsoon Wedding is shot on 16mm film. Yeah. And looks beautiful. And looks really great and kind of vibrant. And uh, I love the way it looks. I love the way it feels. And uh, Rachel Getting Married is shot on digital. Hence why it's being included here. And captures the same types of events in a different setting in a much much more interesting way you can actually just watch them uh, not side by side that'd be weird who watches two films at once that's ridiculous um, <laughs> but you can kind of watch them and see that you they've managed to capture the dark side of a wedding and kind of family problems in a way that the celebration did um, yeah. and, and with that intimacy that uh, digital allows so I don't really have any other reason than picking this film on the fact that I really liked it <laughs> well that's the, the whole point of the top ten yeah, it's the ones that uh, that we feel strongly about. Yeah, it's not like a big pioneer in terms of you know, it is the, on the vanguard of the digital movement. It's just a good film that I really like. That I kind of, you know, thought I'd mention. And you know, the monsoon wedding counterpoint is uh, worth knowing. Yeah, sure. Uh, he's also shooting my wedding. Uh, paid him oh. fifty quid. He's going to do it on his <laughs> iPhone. Uh, what's your next choice? My next choice actually falls under the "It's just a really good film" uh, banner. Uh, which is uh, David Finch's Zodiac from 2007 mm. um, which uh, I'm including primarily because when we were uh, throwing around uh, ideas for films that we needed to talk about for this episode y- you threw it out as being uh, the first example you could think of of a film that was shot digitally but looked so good that you couldn't tell uh, and yeah and, uh, yeah and also sorry also that it was notable because it was set in the past yes that's uh, another thing uh which you know it's not really trying to capture the 70s mm. in sort of like the the aesthetic choices um in the same way that something like um Argo which you know tries to be very 70s but kind of doesn't quite manage it um you know that that tries for the same sort of thing Zodiac just kind of goes 
it's set in the 70s, everyone's dressed like the 70s, but we're not going to shoot it and make it try and pretend that this is a lost film from the 70s. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the reason I, one of the other reasons I chose it was that um, when you said that it was so good you didn't know it, I didn't know that Zodiac was shot digitally. Mm. I just assumed it was a celluloid film because it looks as, you know, it looks that good. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, five years ago before the technology had quite reached the levels that we're at now. I'm sure that people who are actual cinematographers can tell the difference. But, you know, I think that um, it's uh, it's a film that, you know, has uh, stood the test of time. It's only like six years old, but, you know, it's uh, it's a film that was more or less ignored when it came out. It didn't do very well. Financially, it didn't do terribly well at the Oscars. In fact, it was kind of a big... It didn't do anything at the Oscars. It didn't get nominated for anything. It was a big flop as well, because it was essentially... It cost, like, almost $100 million to make, and I think it took, like, 40 you know, it was mm. like it was it was just a non-starter, but it was this film that you know people have kind of rallied around. But I think now is recognised as as kind of a a modern masterpiece. It's my favourite um, David Fincher film. I think it's probably the best argument to put forward for the potential of sort of digital cinema. Um, yeah. On that sort of a scale, you know, because obviously digital cinema, there's a strong argument to be made for it using the sort of films we've talked about so far, which are films that are made very sort of low budget and you know people who are perhaps you know, either they either can't get the funding together to make the film they want or they're just starting out and they want to, you know, just make a film and they don't really care if it's shot on film or something. You know, this is uh, David Fincher who by that point had been working in the film industry for over a decade. He'd made, you know, some like hugely uh, successful films, some films that weren't very successful but were massively influential like Fight Club. Um and he he has really embraced the format since Zodiac because uh, you know pretty much every film he's shot since has been a digi- has been shot on digital, mm. and um, Zodiac is the one where uh, it it really works um, and you know it's it's easily his his best film for me. My next choice is a uh, I'm throwing back to what I was saying about John Cassavetes earlier is that um, I'm going to kind of highlight probably what. John Cassavetes probably would have been doing around now, um, and I'm going to pick uh, the Puffy Chair as a uh, as my kind of next choice. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know, um, it was the that film that birthed that horrible, <laughs> lazy catchphrase, uh, Mumblecore. It was uh, a Duplass Brothers film, uh, which documented a very simple story of two brothers travelling cross country to deliver a replica chair to their dad as a birthday present um, a chair replica of a chair that he used to have when he, they were kids um, and it's shot all on consumer uh, video cameras they they make no attempt to um, light the film cinematically they make no attempt to shoot the film cinematically there's racking focuses in it there's uh, quick zooms in there's you know bits where you can't really see clearly what's happening um, but they completely embrace it they don't try and um, ape the look of cinema at all um, but they managed to turn out the story and the emotions are cinematic and that is all that matters and um, that kind of uh, type of film and that type of storytelling um, suits digital filmmaking beautifully and um, in the way that it almost seems pointless to shoot that kind of film on film I think Especially that film in particular. Have you seen it? Uh, I haven't seen that. I've seen a few Duplass Brothers ones, but I haven't seen um, I haven't seen that one. I really want to. It's their final uh, stars. It's on it's on US Netflix. Check it out. I will definitely check it out. Yeah, I, I can definitely uh, see what you mean because you know from their other films, I can tell that they're very sort of loose, very in the moment, very much kind of like uh, you know capturing sort of uh, emotions as they kind of like crop up in scenes and you know through improvisation. Mm-hmm. And uh, that just, to me, seems like the absolute uh, textbook description of what um, what digital filmmaking should uh, aim to accomplish, really, mm. as opposed to sort of the more sort of rigorous and sort of staged sense that you have from celluloid. Yeah, if you've got if you've got no money, don't try and make it look like you have. Just get mm. some mates in a room with a video camera. Don't try and shoot Lawrence of Arabia on your iPhone. You'll just look silly. And the film won't look very good either. So there's the lesson that the Duplass brothers are teaching us. Um, uh, are we up to your final choice, Ed? Yes, we are. Um, um, what is it? 
Uh, I'm just going to quickly slip another one in there because you just reminded me in talking about um, shooting on consumer ones. Uh, Spike Lee's Bamboozled is a uh, digital film that I'm very fond of. Um, oh, yeah. Which, if I, if I remembered it, probably would have uh, been in here. Um, uh, yeah, Bamboozled, which is uh, about a, uh, a, a network executive who uh, tries to expose the inherent racism of uh, network television by pitching... A new a revival of the black and white minstrel show, which mm-hmm. becomes wildly popular. Um, yeah. And it's a very uh, very strange Spike Lee film, as as a lot of them are. But it's uh you know it, it makes good use of the, the the sort of the harshness and the sort of the cheapness of the digital photography, uh, and also has a nice contrast because obviously um, they shoot all of the stuff for the TV show on um, I think 35 mil, so it looks like the sort of big brash. Uh, ex, you know, visually quite uh, splendid sequences. Um, so I just thought I'd throw that one out there. Uh, but my actual choice is um, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, mm. the uh, final film by the uh, the late uh, much missed uh, Sidney Lumet, um, who uh, uh, this was uh, made in 2007, and uh, it came um, I think as a pretty huge surprise to everyone, really. Mm. Um, because obviously Sidney Lumet had been around since the 1950s. Um, you know, uh, his first film was uh, Twelve Angry Men, um, and uh, you know there was he, he kept going. He was he, he kept making films during that time, but um, I don't think anyone thought that he had the kind of uh, brash or experimental streak that you would expect of someone who would make a film like Before the Devil Knows You Dead, which is a very down and dirty. Um, sort of uh, a visceral uh, crime thriller Mm. um, which uh, you know stylistically has some very weird and abrasive ticks there's the story's told um, out of sequence showing uh, various different viewpoints of of people's lives leading up to and following a uh, a botched uh, jewel robbery and uh, every time it switches perspective it does this weird frame juddering thing with like as if uh, the, the, you're watching like a videotape and it's and someone's taped over part of it to to, sh- to with something else mm. and it's it's uh, it's the sort of thing you would expect a younger filmmaker who would just be kind of like yeah look at me uh, with my digital effects uh, would do but he kind of like just you know eighty odd uh, veteran of the film industry kind of comes in, sees this new technology and really kind of like seizes it with both hands and creates this uh, this sort of film that feels like it's made by someone in their 20s. Yeah, it's a very, very dynamic film and completely out of step with all of his other work as well. Yeah, it's a really weird sort of late flourish in his career, really. <laughs> Just at the very last moment, he says, oh, I'll throw out this really sort of dark and violent and nihilistic... Uh, um, sort of crime drama, which also doubles up as this sort of whole thing about a family that's slowly falling apart. Mm. Uh, but it's a really, it's a really, really great film, uh, and it does kind of leave me sad that because he he lived for a few more years before dying in I think 2010, and he didn't make another film, obviously because it was his final one. Um, it kind of makes me sad that he didn't kind of leap in and just like make a couple more sort of quick. Uh, digital films like that because I think uh, he based on on that film alone he seemed to just kind of like relish the opportunity to work with the new technology yeah absolutely Um, my last choice and the last choice of our ten is another example of a old master uh, using digital but unlike Sidney Lumet he doesn't kind of use it in a a different way to kind of explore uh, experimental styles he very much uses it in his own way that he has done for years but it just looks very very good and very sumptuous and very beautiful beautiful and that's the 2009 film by francis ford coppola tetro have you seen the film ed i haven't no everything i've heard about it makes me sound like i'd make it sound like i'd love it but i've just never had the opportunity yeah you would bloody love it it's it's fantastic and it's a film as well that i didn't realize uh, had been shot on digital. Um, it's a black and white film. It's a film that stars uh, Vincent Gallo, but don't let that put you off. Um, and yeah, it just it captures that. The it feels very much like a seventies um, filmmaker making a twenty first century film, and that's what has kind of annoyed, annoyed me about Coppola for so long that he hasn't, you know, because. 
he's had he's had some lean years, should we say? And um, I think you made a film the year before, Youth uh, Youth Without Youth, which was also shot yeah. on digital. But I've not actually seen that one, so I'm not talking about that. Um, which you know people seem to regard as decent. Um, but Tetra was for many a return to to form, and it was one of my favourite films of that that whole year. It was an exceptional piece of work, and um, you know it really is a uh, I'd hold it out there as a um, put on a podium as to show what digital can do, um, uh, and yeah, it's the the use of light in that film is is beautiful, absolutely lovely, um, and like I said, don't let Vincent Gallo put you off. Uh, it's great. Um, so yeah, that's our ten. Yeah, um, that's uh, yeah, it's a good one. It's a good list, that. Um, yeah, one of our best. Yeah, one of our best. Um, we'll go on our top ten, top ten list. Yes, we'll do that. Um, yeah, well, thanks everyone for listening. Um, so um, yeah, we'll be back with another podcast. Uh, who knows what on? Maybe we'll get to hear that wire episode we recorded like the best <laughs> part of a year ago. Um, but uh, until then, it's uh, goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.